Hello, and welcome to another edition of Speaking Culturally. Today we are joined on the phone by Hannah Scruggs, a staffer at the National Museum of African American History and Culture. Welcome to the show, Hannah. Thanks for having me. For the listeners out there, uh, tell them a little bit about yourself. Sure. So I grew up in central Virginia, about 15 miles southeast of Charlottesville in Fluviana County. Um, I went to the College of William and Mary in Williamsburg, Virginia, where I studied history. I, uh, after graduating college, I served with AmeriCorps in Braddock, Pennsylvania, it's right outside of Pittsburgh, um, at the at a historic library, a historic Carnegie Library, and um, and then I went to uh, graduate school for public history for my MA at North Carolina State University. Um, right after I graduated NC State in May of 2017, I moved back home to Charlottesville and worked at James Madison's Montpelier, where I was um, the lead on the Descendant community um, and with the Descendants Project, where I served as kind of an intermediary between the foundation and Descendant community. Um, And then uh, in May, or sorry, in April of 2018, I started working part-time at the National Museum of African American History and Culture um, and started working there full-time in um, October of 2019. What was it like growing up in an area where your ancestors were enslaved? Um, well, when I, I guess I haven't known anything different. Um, so I think I realized that, like I learned that factual information um, when I was about 10 years old. I've always been really into history and and uh, the history of my family. Um, and I was assigned to do a research project when I was 10 in fourth grade about um about this plantation sort of specifically um and my teacher at the time had a connection uh with the people that the current owners who were descendants of the the people who had owned it you know in the 19th century and so she put me in touch with them and again i was like 10 (laughs) and so she put my mom in touch with them is what i mean we made a point to go visit and when i was going um my dad was like oh like we grew up right around there we grew up playing on that property um, and mentioned something about our family maybe being enslaved there. So I reached out to my, some of my dad's aunts, who at that time were living in probably in their 70s and 80s, and they sent me back these written oral histories that they had about family members um, who had been enslaved at this this plantation. It's called Brimo. And so I sort of went into interviewing this family, uh, the descendants of people who had enslaved my family, um, with this knowledge, um, and not really knowing what the weight of that was, because again, like I was 10 and I had this conversation um, with them about slavery um, and they showed me all around the house and they showed me the cellars where my ancestors likely would have worked. Um, and they showed me these like placards that were used for teaching school um, because the plantation owner, um, the enslaver at that time, John Hartwell Cock, thought it was really important for uh, the people he enslaved to know how to read the Bible because he and his wife were very religious. And so I got to like touch those placards and got to go into a, like a, a, a slave, slave dwelling as well. Um, and so it was a really powerful experience. Uh, my, my project <laughs> that I did, I was really into the Dear America books when I was younger. Those like journal-like books about girls in, in historical periods. I did one like that about a, a girl who would have been enslaved at Brimo. From there, I've, I've gone back a few times and actually like 
during one family reunion, my dad and all of his sisters and my grandma, we all went went back together. Um, and there's a, a slave cemetery that's still there that has a, actually has a headstone with the name on it. And the person who was buried there is actually one of my ancestors. And I didn't know that when I was 17, which is when I was there with my family. But I learned that a few years ago. So it's been really, it's been powerful to have that connection. When I was growing up, it's just, it was like a fact that I knew. And I think growing up where where I did, that wasn't unique <clears throat> necessarily. Not a lot of people and not a lot of African-Americans have uh, migrated to central Virginia. In fact, mostly people have left um, before the Civil War ended, before emancipation. Um, the black population in central Virginia was over 50%. Um, and now it, it hovers right around 20, like between 15 and 20%. And it has only been going down since 1865. Now, what I've noticed uh, in my research and travels Visitors to descended communities uh, go in search of authentic experiences. How do you feel about these spaces uh, bringing, being lures for tourists? Yeah, I think for the descendant communities that I've often worked with, which is really mostly at Montpelier, mm-hmm. um, Montpelier descendant community, uh, many of those people that are involved are local to the area. Um, or have spent time, had spent time there at some point in their lives, whether they grew up in the D.C. area and spent summers coming back home to see family members, or whether, you know, they grew up, they just grew up with a connection to this place for the most part, which I think is different than maybe descendant communities in other places. But I think for our descendant community, having a connection to place, place was really important, right? Like to be able to actually be in the places um, that your your enslaved ancestors, or just your ancestors in general, we had descendants of people who lived nearby and were free. <clears throat> and I think there's a sense of, there can be a sense, and not everyone feels this way, um, but there can be a sense of, of empowerment and in reclaiming, in reclaiming that space. Um, I think for, for tourism purposes, it, it you might walk a, a tricky line, um, a lot of what I spent my time trying to do there at Montpelier was getting people involved that would eventually be able to be part of a decision-making process for the foundation because I, I really wanted people not to just come to this place to visit and to say, like, you know, my ancestors are from here, but I wanted them to be able to make decisions about the way that the foundation runs today, which is challenging, I guess, <laughs> um, when you're working with a place that its bottom line is still making money and and tourism, right? In the decision-making process, um, how do you get the foundation to incorporate dark aspects of enslavement into their interpretations? So at Montpelier, the, before I got there, um, they had actually started working on their exhibit and were just about to open their exhibit, The Mere Distinction of Color, which I think is a really astounding example of the way that descendant input can be incorporated into an exhibit. They had representatives from the descendant community at the time go through and walk through them, walk through every step of the process with them and sign off on every step of the process. Um, And every decision that was made, it was very joint decision-making. So I think um, that some, your, your, Museum has to be open to it, <laughs> um, but there that that's becoming more 
and more um, regular, I guess, I think, or it's, it's at least now there's a precedent that's been set, been set with, that, um, with that exhibition. As for humanizing enslaved people, um, what sources and tools uh, did Montpelier utilize to accomplish this feat? Yeah, so one of the guiding sort of quotes at Montpelier, I think that really hit everyone who was working on Mere Distinction of Color, which again, it was not me. It was um, uh, my colleagues there at the time, Christian Coates and Elizabeth Chu, um, Elizabeth Ladner, Hilary Hicks, and, and many, and Matt Reeves, um, Mary Minkoff, uh, Terry Brock, many other people um, that really spent a lot of time, as well as obviously the descendants themselves. But my colleagues at Montpelier, I know, were really impacted by the quote from Tana Coates that said that slavery happened to one person at a time. And we're really impacted by the individual nature of slavery and the way it happened to, again, one person at a time. Um, and that it wasn't something that happened to, like, in air, I'm using air quotes, slaves. Right. You know, it happened to people. And so I think that with people that we did have um, and do have inf- more information about, like Paul Jennings, for example, who wrote a colored man's remembrances of the White House or of James Madison, something like that. And it's sad that I don't know the exact title. Anyway, so we have his memoir, which is, you know, it is a, a slave narrative. And so we have a lot of detail about his life. Um, and so we use that as much as possible, or they use that as much as possible to fill in some of the details. Learning as much as you can from uh, the papers of the white families that owned, you know, um, the enslaved and enslaved people at those sites. Um, somewhere like Monticello, with Thomas Jefferson, he has so much writing that, and just these immaculate farm books that have existed and and been uh, preserved by family members um, into the future. That wasn't the case with James Madison. James Madison didn't have any biological children that we are one like Noah, but or I should say any white biological children to preserve his legacy in the same way as Thomas Jefferson did. So we had less to go on, um, but we used what we had. And then you can use the county courthouse. You can look at records, and if you're, you know, it's, it's not a burned county. So Orange wasn't a burned county. So there are plenty of records there. There's a lot of records at uh, the Library of Virginia. So you know, it's. It is you you use not just um, the kind of within reach like easy low hanging fruit information you have to understand um, more about the period itself and more about things surrounding and and the events surrounding that time period and the way people lived and how slavery functioned during that time period that's crucial and I think the more you get use some of those things, the easier it is to to fill out narratives about people who you may know less about. Was it difficult to get the descendants to the table for this project? So I think it had number, so Montpelier had been doing descendant work for 20 years before I got there. Informal at times, but it was all about relationship building. Uh, My colleague I mentioned earlier, Matt Reeves, um, and then a, a woman named Rebecca Gilmore Coleman from the community, as well as another woman, um, Iris Ford, worked really hard to make sure Montpelier was acknowledging its history of slavery. Rebecca had, or her, she had learned that her family had owned the, the Freedman's Cottage across the street from Montpelier. 
Um, and when Montpelier was being restored in the early 2000s, she contacted the administration at that time uh, and said, you know, you're putting all of this money into restoring this. My my family was enslaved here. My grandfather was born across the street. My father was born across the street. You know, what say you about about preservation and, and telling the whole story? Um, and so sort of began their relationship with her, and she's brought other people along throughout the years, including her family, but also other community members. Um, and Montpelier has a really open definition of what it means to be a descendant, so, and which I, I fully agree with. So it's, you can, you're, if you can trace your ancestry there, if your family, you know your family lived in the area, like okay. just in general, or if you just feel a spiritual connection to the place, that that's who counts as a descendant. So it can, and, and a spiritual connection to the work that's being done. So I think with a, a broader approach, you're not dependent on just like a handful of people who you can trace, who you can, whose descendants you can trace like genealogically wow. through 150 plus years. So I think over time, um, they, they've built uh, a larger descendant community and gotten more people involved. And currently, their descendant community is is sort of forming its own separate organization um, to be able to be to advocate for themselves and represent themselves to Montpelier, as opposed to having someone like me be a, a kind of function of the foundation. Now you've had experiences working at historic sites and museums. In your professional opinion, uh, what are the steps we need to take now to interpret enslavement going forward? That's a really big question. So I think a lot of places are starting to take a hard look at how they've interpreted or not interpreted slavery um, for decades. Um, and some places are changing their interpretation to be more reflective of the truth. Uh, other places are not really doing that. Um, but I know that there have been countless articles since about 2017 um, mm -hmm. about interpreting slavery in outlets like the Washington Post and uh, the New York Times. Yeah. yeah. Um, this is a topic that's very popular right now and people are very interested. Um, and I think I have, theory, I have theories that I have no, no idea if they're founded, but I think generations coming up, now that we have access to so much more information, we're much less interested in narratives about great white men um, of history and these kind of limited narratives. So uh, historic houses and historic plantations, visitation has been declining for about 25 years. Um, so right now it's a struggle to figure out how to attract people. And I think a lot of, com a lot of conversations are being had of, of who are we trying to attract? Are we trying to keep our same audience of uh, white men 65 and up? Because that's the main demographic of people who visit historic house and plantation museums or are we trying to attract a new generation of people in who are interested in hearing a broader story so i think right now we with historic plantation sites we're kind of at a moment a crossroads um, um a, a decision making moment um that will impact us for the next you know however many decades of interpretation and what i hope that people do is really rethink the ways that the space that these sites are being used, um, the stories that are being told, and opt to tell a more truthful story, and opt to let and opt to have in, and intentionally seek descendant voices to be in charge of those places, um, 
and to play a role and to have multiple descendants on their board, you know, things like that. What about the inclusion of the stories of the work enslaved women performed? Uh, we know in some cases they work side by side with enslaved men. However, do you think it's important to do better of humanizing enslaved women? Um, I think that in general there should be, like, when it comes to talking about slavery and labor and work, I think that we actually don't go very deep into talking about those things. Like, we can say, yes, <laughs> enslaved people here, you know, picked cotton or grew rice. So if you're talking about like the Gullet Beach Corridor, um, it would be great to see interpretation of exactly what that entailed. And sure, some people might be like, that's really detailed. But I think in including like specific tasks and what the processes look like at more, more sites, you, you have a better idea of what someone's day-to-day might have looked like, um, whether that was a man or a woman. And I think when it comes to labor for women, Yes, there could be. And I, some places, I know Monticello talks a lot about um, enslaved women and men who did a lot and, and cooked, um, were, were chefs, essentially. Um, Thomas Jefferson gets all of this credit for creating Southern food, and he was not the one cooking it ever at all, <laughs> right? Like, it wasn't him. Like, next time I see Thomas Jefferson's macaroni and cheese on anyone's menu, I will scratch it off of the pen. But so I think like you can talk more about the lives of individuals that we know more about um, and then using context like I was saying earlier to fill in some of the gaps where we don't know much about. I think some sites have shied away from talking about sexual violence mm-hmm. and rape, um, which I think is a really important thing to talk about when it comes to slavery. We've you know, with Me Too, um, been talking about sexual violence against women much more in our society at, as a you know as a whole. But plantation sites, it's difficult information. But I don't think that means that people should shy away from it. So I think including more individualized information again can be challenging because of the lack of individual narratives that have come out of of slavery. I think whenever they're included, whoever's done the narrative, man or woman. If there's one attached to a certain plantation site that is like interpreted as a historic site, um, that's utilized because it also tells you more. No matter you know how well that site interprets slavery, <laughs> it also tells you more about how the, the plantation ran. But I think when it comes to women in particular, it could. I think something that is not talked about very much um, is how the legacies of slavery have impacted Black women in particular, and how that sort of dehumanization and like uh, being classified essentially as not a woman has impacted black women's history as a whole. Hannah, I thank you for calling in to discuss uh, the ways of interpreting slavery going forward. Do you have any final thoughts today? Well, thanks so much for chatting with me. This was really great. And I, you know, I hope that people who are listening got something out of today and are also inspired to continue doing the work of social and restorative justice that comes, you know, uh, that we have to do to fight the legacies of slavery. Again, thank you for your time on this topic. Thank you. Thank you.